Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Really pleased to say that joining us around the table here in New York, Lindsay Piegsa, Stiefel, Chief Economist, the head of a Fed decision tomorrow. Lindsay, good morning. What are you telling clients at the moment? Well, right now, the rate cut is pretty much baked in to the market. But the big question is, what are we going to see in the aftermath of the July rate cut? Will the Fed position for a near-term second round cut? Or will they take more of a neutral stance saying, we'll continue to watch the data as it evolves without any sort of specific uh, tee-up for a September rate reduction. So, Lindsay, are you in the camp that says, you know, this is this Fed is prepared to cut maybe four times by mid next year, get us a full hundred basis points? Well, right now, our forecast is for a 25 basis point cut later this week, an additional 25 in September. And then we could actually see the Fed take a pause, depending on whether or not that initial policy reduction of 50 basis points cumulative does stabilize the economy. Of course, there's other variables going into that, international variables, as such as slower global growth, if we see there a stabilization there, if we see progress in terms of trade talks. So there are a number of uncertainties still weighing on the outlook. But if, in fact, we we do see domestic growth stabilized by 50 basis points and international certainties, uh, excuse me, uncertainties abate, yeah. then the Fed could sit on the sideline for some time. Lindsay, what is the dividing line between an insurance rate cut and a rate cutting cycle? It's a very thin line. Uh, I think it, it really comes down to a pause. An insurance-style rate cut would be somewhere in the ballpark of one to two rate cuts and then sitting on the sideline for a number of uh, meetings. So essentially pleased with the initial policy adjustment to stabilize the economy. Entering into an outright easing cycle, at least from a historical standpoint, would be a number of rate cuts uh, in a rapid time frame. Do you think the Chairman Powell will be happy that he won't have to have a summary of economic projections with him tomorrow and he won't have the dot plot? to be thrown at him in the news conference? Well, there won't be an official forecast, but I do suspect that he will be asked about any sort of change in the forecast, which is interesting because if you look at the June summary of economic projections or the SEP, the Fed is still very optimistic in terms of growth and inflation. And so again, this supports the notion that the Fed is not concerned about the economy falling off a cliff, but they're simply offering that preventative policy measure to help stabilize the economy against potential headwinds. So Lindsay, some folks that come in here talking about uh, the likelihood of a recession in the U.S. economy uh, sometime mid to late 2020. Are you in that camp? I do think the risk of recession is around 50% for 2020, so rapidly rising, in my opinion. Now, you can certainly point to second quarter GDP that was above expectations, but noticeably reduced from the pace we saw at the start of the year. And if you look at the composition of growth, it was very isolated. Predominantly, the consumer helped stabilize the economy in the second quarter. Going into the second half, however, if we don't see a pickup in housing, business investment, manufacturing, it's going to be very difficult to even maintain this reduced 2% growth level. And if we continue to see this slow slide or this slow deterioration of growth, we could easily easily be in recessionary uh, territory by 2020. To be clear here, Lindsay, do you think the birth for the slowdown next year comes from abroad or within the United States? Where do you think this is coming from? I think both. I think it's very difficult to pinpoint the slowdown as a result of international headwinds, which are acting as contagion to the domestic economy, 
and domestic weakness. I think we are seeing both variables come into play here. Many people think the easing cycle that has commenced worldwide will offset some of these difficulties. I think a question that Chairman Powell will face again tomorrow, perhaps from our colleague Michael McKee, who has asked this question before, why will an interest rate cut help? Do we have an answer, a really good answer to that as to why a rate cut from the Federal Reserve actually helps given the conditions we have at the moment? Well, that's one of the biggest questions because right now you're talking about traditionally providing easier money policy or or additional accommodation to the credit markets. Rates are already historically very low. So on the one hand, the Fed is saying the economy is in a good place. Well, if the economy is in such a good place, why do we need even more accommodative policy than we already have? And to your point, will the Fed be able to stabilize the economy? They have very little wiggle room to provide additional stimulus. If you think back to 07, if you think back to 01, the Fed cut rates around 400, 500 basis points. This time around, we only have 250. And in fact, looking at the partial inversion of the yield curve, if we give back 50 basis points just to write the curve, that leaves the Fed with only 200 basis points to provide organic stimulus. So if, in fact, the economy does begin to significantly lose momentum towards those recessionary conditions or non-accelerating period of of expansion, the Fed is going to have a very difficult time relying on rate reductions alone to buoy the economy back into positive territory. So, Lindsay, you mentioned that the obviously the consumer has been very strong supporting this, uh, the late stages of this economic cycle. What do you expect to see in the jobs report? On Friday. Well, first off, I think the the consumer is stronger than they were in the first quarter, but I wouldn't say they're outright strong. There's okay. still a lot of uneven activity that we've been seeing in the consumer sector. But as it translates into the the upcoming employment report, we saw a very strong June. We saw a very weak May. Yep. I think July it comes right down and splits the difference around 150,000. So certainly, we're still seeing Americans put back to work on a month to month basis but at a noticeably reduced level, certainly compared to the more robust levels we saw in years past. Lindsay, no real signs of stress looking at initial jobless claims, though some people have come on this program and pointed out what is happening with the ADP report. The smaller size companies actually shedding jobs. How are you framing that for clients at the moment? What are you telling them at Well, when we talk to businesses, big and small, many are complaining about the already heightened level of labor costs and the expectation that labor costs are going to continue to rise. So in fact, when we look at the the breakdown of business investment, businesses remain very hesitant to invest in further new employees, as we've seen very tepid hiring, as we just discussed. The one area that where businesses are willing to invest is technology. So in fact, they're willing to eat that upfront cost but also potentially replace that rapidly rising labor cost. So on the one hand, yes, we could be driving higher productivity and keeping costs of production lower, but that will, in fact, replace many of these payroll numbers that we're expecting to see. So, Lindsay, are you surprised that given that we are at or near full employment, I'm not sure how we want to define that, but we haven't seen more wage inflation? I'm not surprised because when we're looking at the civilian calculation of 3.7%, that sounds pretty impressive. Certainly, that's a vast improvement from 10% in the aftermath of the Great Recession. But 3.7% doesn't tell the whole story. It doesn't include the millions of Americans that are sitting on the sideline and have been sitting on the sideline for years, not actively participating in the labor force. When we add them back in, that unemployment rate doubles, which more closely coincides with the lack of wage pressure that we have seen on the aggregate. Hey, Lindsay, great to catch up with you. Ahead of a really important Fed meeting coming up tomorrow, Lindsay Piexa there, Stiefel, Chief Economist.
Jordan Rochester, otherwise known as Mr. Brokesit. He joins us now, Nomura G10 FX strategist. Jordan, good morning to you. Good morning, John. How are you doing? I'm very well. Just tell me what you're telling clients at the moment about this relentless move lower in sterling. It really has been relentless. And I guess for someone who follows the ins and outs of the Boris Johnson leadership campaign, I mean, none of the actual politics so far has been surprising. We've seen a Brexiteer champion who led the Brexit campaign, who has pushed for a a more tougher stance on the EU. When it comes to the withdrawal agreement, he has consistently said, get rid of the Irish backstop and we won't um, negotiate until the EU admits to that. And now he's prime minister. And guess what? He's saying the exact same thing. Uh, But I guess the market was just a bit asleep at the wheel. Um, I guess folks were looking for him to be less of a campaigner and more of a prime minister when he came in and to maybe soften his tone. Whatever it is that drove things, it was perhaps the headline from our now uh, Michael Gove, who is essentially uh, the guy who is in charge of the no deal preparations. And he he said on the weekend, the working assumption of the government is a no deal Brexit. Now, he would say that. His his role is to plan for a no deal uh, in the event of that. And that's what kind of changed things for the market, where we suddenly stopped treating it like a tail risk and more of a base case. And the pound, it's fallen a lot. We're talking 2 to 3% over the past month. But if you told me with 100% certainty, Jordan, there's going to be a hard Brexit at the end of uh, October, where does the pound trade? You're talking 115 to 118 against the dollar. You're so, talking 95 cents to 98 against the euro. So, Jordan, what could turn around this doomsday scenario that we're seeing just uh, here in the sterling? It's a question I ask myself with, on those calls with clients uh, today and yesterday. There's a few things that could turn things around. The problem is it's very unpredictable because politics is a slippery uh, animal to deal with. Um, and also, I struggle to find a date in the diary until we get to September before those positives could happen. So what are they? So the main thing that keeps everybody, allows everyone to sleep at night, I guess, is Parliament does have a majority against a no-deal Brexit. The problem I have is Parliament can't do much right now because they're on their summer holidays uh, in recess and they do not come back until the 3rd of September. And when they do come back, it's more likely we're going to be be dealing with negatives rather than positives. So Parliament, that could perhaps stop no deal, but it's hard in the short term to to provide a positive. Another positive could be if the EU offers something. So if the EU gives us uh, an olive branch to work with, maybe talking about reopening the mandate for Michel Barnier and discussing the Irish border, that could be a headline that moves sterling higher. Hey, Jordan, great to catch up with you. Jordan Rochester, Namora G10, FX strategist, otherwise known in the City of London as Mr. Brexit. Trade talks, they begin or resume, however you want to frame it, over in Shanghai today between the United States and China. The president out on Twitter today saying that the Chinese have not restarted buying agricultural commodities in the quantities that they were promising the United States. The Huawei chairman out today saying that the supply of critical components from the United States has not resumed either, despite the president's proclamation in June that the company would be able to buy some American technology once again. So what does it mean for trade talks and what 
are the chances of a breakthrough this week? Jennifer Hillman joining us now, CFR Senior Fellow for Trade and International Political Economy. So Jennifer, help us understand just how hard it will be to have a breakthrough this week. I think it's going to be extremely hard to see how you get a deal this week. Uh, partly that's because there have been a lot of things added into these discussions that weren't there before. As you mentioned, the Huawei kind of tech war um, is making it much harder to get a deal. And added to all of that is China blaming the United States for inflaming the tensions and riling up the protesters in Hong Kong. So the atmosphere for getting a deal right now is really tough. So, Jennifer, you're a former commissioner at the United States International Trade Commission. You've got some experience with this type of thing. Is it your sense that the Trump administration's policy of pursuing a unilateral tariff-based approach to negotiations is the way to go with the Chinese at this point? No, I don't think it is. Um, And that's because what we really need, I mean, to make it a good deal with China, you need to deal with a lot of structural issues. The major problem that we really have is China's use of subsidies and the huge number of state-owned enterprises where the, the party and the state are controlling it, are directing the resources. Those are very hard structural issues to get at. China won't change those just because of pressure from the United States. If we're going to get a serious structural deal, we're going to need our allies to be there with us. And the trouble for us is that our allies share a lot of our concerns and a lot of our uh, worries about China, but do not share the idea that we should go at all of this unilaterally or use illegal tariffs to do it. So given that backdrop, what is a realistic outcome for trade negotiations between the U.S. and China? Is, is it just going to be some type of headline deal or perhaps even nothing at all? Well, I think there, there is a realistic prospect. China has already agreed to quite a lot of things in the course of these negotiations, and there is already a lot of text agreements worked out. Uh, so I do think you could see something happening where China would agree to get rid of their current limits on how much foreign investment can go into certain sectors. Right now, many sectors, you can only have 49% foreign ownership which means, again, China remains in control. Those limits can be clearly agreed to. China will agree, I think, to increase the level of its intellectual property protection. China, I think, will agree uh, to restraints on the forced technology transfers. So there is a lot that is already on the table and is achievable. The problem is going to be the rest of it, the hard things, the structural things about how much Communist Party control there is, the subsidies, etc. I do not see how you're going to get an agreement on that. Uh, The other thing where you may see is, again, commitments by China to buy more American stuff, whether that's agricultural products or whether that's other manufactured goods. I can see that agreement. And the question will always come down to, is this an enforceable agreement? Jennifer, as we get closer to 2020, does that change things? Just in terms of well, the negotiations, it's, it's very of what clear he that the wants. president is currently already saying um, maybe China would be better off waiting until after the election to get an agreement. Uh, he's, he's obviously arguing that um, if a Democrat were to be elected, that China could get an easy um, and quick deal that would be less tough. I, I don't agree with that, but it's clear that the president is already seeing this playing into the presidential politics. But it cuts both ways. Already, we are seeing that the U.S. tariffs are 
first of all, not bringing jobs back to the United States. And that was one of the clear promises that the president made, that this whole trade war with China was going to be bringing jobs back to the U.S. That's not where the jobs are going. They're going to Vietnam. They're going to Mexico. They're going to Cambodia. They're going to Thailand. But they're not coming back to the United States. And the second thing that you're clearly seeing is that the trade uncertainty that all of this trade war with China is doing is dragging down the U.S. economy. And you're seeing that very clearly in the slower growth um, in the second quarter of 2019 and in the lack of private investment in the United States is very much key to the fact that everybody doesn't know where this whole trade war is headed. The longer it goes, the more it continues. I think the more of a drag this trade war is going to be on the U.S. economy. So, Jennifer, just give us a sense from your experience what you think China really wants here. What do you think would be an acceptable deal for China, knowing that some hard concessions are going to have to be made on both sides? Well, China needs to see a deal that is a win-win for both sides. In other words, I don't think you can see China making major concessions that are just perceived as a unilateral concession to the United States because of this. Certainly, there are many of the reformers in China that understand that China needs to reform, uh, that the increase in the amount of state-owned enterprises that are not doing well financially, that the increased demand in China um, has – so and China needs to see a deal that works in China's interest at well, as well. And they need to see that this agreement is one that is pushing China to do some things that would be better for the Chinese economy. It's not clear yet where that deal lies, where China can say that it's also done some things that either it was going to do anyway or that are clearly in China's interest. And that's, I think, where a lot of the focus of the talks is going to have to be going forward. Jennifer, how much clarity at the moment do you have on how much pain the Chinese economy and the Chinese government is going through at the moment? It's difficult sometimes from the outside looking in. Certainly some of the data points look weaker. But what's your take on that? Well, again, part of it is, yes, China's growth rate has come down, but you have to remember it's come down from very high levels. I mean, the Chinese economy had been growing 8 9 10%. Uh, so the fact that it's come down to a growth rate in the order of 6%, yes, is a significant slowing of the growth rate in the Chinese economy, uh, but it is still growing at a very substantial rate. And again, we have to remember that the Chinese economy, when you think of it from a GDP on a purchasing power parity basis, is larger than our economy. A $23 trillion economy um, on a purchasing power basis, uh, again, growing at even a 6% rate a year is still, you know, again, an extraordinarily large and dynamic economy in China. The reason I ask, Jennifer, is because many people listening to this program, market participants, investors alike, economists, trying to work out whether China is gradually going to move into full stimulus mode. We've seen them reluctant so far over the last year. It's been very gradual and very incremental. How do you see that panning out in the next year or so? I think it's harder to read it now when you add in if you will, the tech war on top of the trade war. Um, when it was just focused on goods and services, I think there was a there was a clear strategy, I think, for China. But when you add in the, the sanctions on Huawei and, you know, the previous ones on ZTE and, and the tech war issues, I think it makes it much harder to see exactly where this is going to play out. Uh, if you listen to what is being said in China, I think China is prepared – to lose, if you will, or to give up a fair amount um, in the light manufacturing sector. In other words, in a number of the products where the tariffs are right now, 
you are starting to see companies move out of China and into Vietnam and other places in Asia and into Mexico. And I think China concedes that that may have to to go. Where China now wants to win is on the tech war, um, and they want to create an entire you know information and communication system that is geared around their technology their Huawei sort of strategy, um, and to pull as many countries into their network and their communications technology, their artificial intelligence, etc. So I think China is putting a lot of its, its you know, ammunition, if you will, into winning the tech war, uh, if you will. Um, and that is a different set of players and a different set of investments that China would need to make. Hey, Jennifer, great to catch up with you to get your insight and a little bit more clarity on trade talks as they begin once more over in Shanghai today between the Chinese and the United States. Jennifer Hillman there, CFR Senior Fellow and Trade and International Political Economy over at CFR, the former commissioner at the United States International Trade Commission. I'm looking at Beyond Meat in the pre-market trading. Stock's down about 15% to about $188 a share. Uh, but remember, the IPO was at $25 a share, so still well in the money. The company reported earnings last night. They also announced that they are going to be selling some stock, mostly secondary shares. So let's get the latest. We welcome our good friend, Jennifer Bartashis. Uh, she's a senior analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence covering all things food retail. She joins us on the phone from Princeton, New Jersey. Jen, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start first. First, with the earnings, looks like they had some pretty good numbers and guidance. Yeah, good morning, Paul. Um, yes, actually, the earnings report itself, there was all good news. Um, the revenue was higher than consensus expected. They actually raised their guidance and forecast for the rest of the year um, pretty substantially. Um, and in addition, with regards to adjusted EBITDA, they also raised their guidance um, in that they expected to turn positive this year as opposed to just breaking even. So all things considered, it was really a, a very, very solid quarter for the company. But it was really the announcement about the additional share issuance that has been pulling the stock down. Right. So this is a surprise, the share issuance, for uh, certainly the, not the least reason that they're still subject to the lockup here. So how is this all taking place? How are they getting approval to do this? Yeah, so so originally there was a six-month lockup period from when the stock IPO'd in May, um, but the underwriters um, have made an exception, um, and that's really all there is to it, and that uh, they're allowing some of these early investors, which include Obvious Ventures, Kleiner Perkins, and then even uh, the CEO, Ethan Brown, and the CFO, Mark Nelson, to, um, to sell some of their shares. Um, and I think the bigger part of this is that it's really the, the bulk of this additional issuance is these insiders, and only a very small amount, 250,000 shares, is coming from the company and will generate revenue that can be plugged back into their company for uh, growth purposes. Yeah, I've been following you know stocks for a long time, and I really can't recall too many instances, if any, where you had an early, you know, the waiver of the early lockup. I'm sure sure it happens, a waiver of the early lockup, and then having you know so much of that uh, insider selling. Was there pushback on the conference call uh, with analysts and investors? Uh, yeah, it's actually very interesting because it is very rare. Um, and, and basically, the company shot down any opportunity for investors to ask about it because they said they would not take any calls or field any questions uh, regarding the, the share issue and citing regulatory um, oh, concerns. Um, so there's really not any commentary from the company themselves about why they decided to do this issuance at this time. 
Well, I guess the, the price action today will be uh, will show how uh, investors feel about that. Going back to the to the operations here, I mean, what is really uh, you get you mentioned uh, they had better than expected numbers. Uh, they raised their guidance. What's driving uh, the growth for this company? What do you expect to be the key growth drivers? Well, really, for Beyond Meat, part of the reason they can continue to keep growing their raising their guidance is that they keep signing on new partnerships, especially in the restaurant space. So the guidance that they um, that they issued yesterday doesn't even include newest partnerships that they've announced, such as with Dunkin' Donuts. Um, and so, you know, it's it's sort of an ever-moving target as they as they bring these partners on, and these are these are companies that will help raise the exposure and the the, the visibility of the Beyond Meat products with the greater consumer audience. Um, it leads to it leads to trial, it leads to additional sales, um, and it just kind of keeps that cycle burning forward. If I'm an investor, do I care um, whether they grow their sales through, you know, selling Beyond Meat in grocery stores or in restaurants? Does it matter to me? Well, in the short term, probably not. But in the long term, I think it does become a consideration. Uh, generally speaking, sales to restaurants are lower margin sales than those to retail outlets. So that is one thing to consider because right now the revenue is almost evenly split um, between uh, between restaurants and between retail for Beyond Meat. Um, in addition, going further, um, right now we're in an economic cycle where people are eating out and they are frequenting restaurants and they are spending. Um, but should that pull back, you really need to have a very solid retail base where people who are preparing food at home are ready to buy that product and bring it to their house and prepare it themselves. And so a long term, um, a focus that, uh, you know, is skews a little bit more heavily to retail to, to, to create that sustainability of consumer reliance on the product may be a, a, a very good strategy. So one of the things um, I hear a lot from analyst investors when they think about this story is competition. It seems like, you know, Beyond Meat is such a small company, yet, it, yes, it is growing very quickly and they have a, a great product in the marketplace, but it just seems like, you know, some of the big food companies at any time could just kind of flood the market with product as well. Uh, and they, of course, with big marketing budgets and so on. What is management saying about competition? Well, right now, management is saying that, you know, although they view competition and that they welcome competition, they don't seem overly concerned about competition. Um, and in, in part, in, in honesty, they kind of have to say that because they are, you know, enjoying a, a great growth period with their company. Um, but when you look at companies like Tyson uh, as a great example, Tyson has started rolling out their own product this summer, um, and they've got products that are completely plant-based, and they also have some that are half and half, so half beef and half plant. Um, but Tyson has a huge relationship, for example, with Walmart. Um, they're both Arkansas-based companies. Um, Walmart is a huge customer of Tyson. Um, and so when it comes to distribution and getting products on the shelves, you can't, can't, you can't count out these really large packaged food companies because of the scale that they have and the network that they have with their supply chain to be able to get products to consumers very quickly. Interesting. Just amazing. So with this story, again, uh, just the stock has just done extraordinary well. Jen Bartashis, thanks so much for joining us. Jen covers all things retail on the food side for Bloomberg Intelligence, including Beyond Meat. Is it food? Is it fake food? Who knows? But it's certainly uh, a, a big new force in the uh, or a big new trend in the food business. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.